The Joseph story continues. Joseph finds his brothers and they treat him badly. Genesis 37, 23 to 36. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. And they took him and they threw him into a cistern and the cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, And they took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We're looking at the Joseph, we're continuing with the Joseph story this morning. Uh, And as we get into that, I was thinking about this idea that our nation is founded upon, and that is, in our Declaration of Independence, it says, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? What is happiness? What does happiness mean to you? What, What does it look like to be happy? Obviously, Joseph is not happy in this point in the story. In fact, he goes through some other difficulties where he is not going to be happy. But when we think of happiness and this pursuit of happiness, what does that mean to you? Anybody got? I'm going to let you answer that one this morning. Go ahead. To feel loved. Good. Joy. What else? Feeling good at the result of circumstances. All right. So we want good circumstances to make us feel good. Gotcha. Okay. Security. Security. Right. What's that again, Noel? Worthwhile work. Yes, yes. I heard another one down here. Content, right? That content and happiness. Well, there are actually three ways that we typically approach happiness as Americans. Or as you look at American life and the pursuit of happiness, according to our founding document, we approach happiness three different ways. According to psychologist Martin Seligman, we do one of three approaches to happiness. One, the first one is 
the pleasant life. We want to experience life's pleasures. We want to, and they don't have to necessarily be vices. They could be good pleasures, like a good cup of coffee or, or, or going to a, a skiing or going on a nice vacation. Those are pleasures. There are pleasures in our life. And so we could pursue what is called the pleasant life, kind of like what John, you said about, you know, feeling good, that the pleasant life is about the pursuit of ways that I can make myself feel good. Now, the problem with the pleasant life is you got to do more and more to get the same pleasure. You have to keep adding to it. You got to go bigger. You got to go greater. You got to keep adding. And so it's unsustainable in some ways. But yet, we all know that. How many people here uh, uh, like to feel good, right? It's okay. This is good. There's, there's nothing wrong. There's no wrong answers here. But we do that. That's part of our pursuit of happiness. The other part of the pursuit of happiness we actually heard is to, is to pursue work, right? And to have a good life, what's called the good life, meaning my work is going well, my family relationships are going well, and I take great vacations. So if you could imagine the good life, the good life is being in the flow, right? It's everything is coming together. I got a good job and I feel like I'm in the flow on my job and everything's going well there and I got a good family and I'm in the flow there and I got a, everything's going well there and, you know, I'm able to have fun. I'm able to do things when I'm not working that allows me to be in the moment and so I'm living the good life. I would say that's where most of us in, as Americans are. Uh, most of us in, in middle class America, I would say, or upper middle class America or, or upper America is that what we're doing is we find ourselves in the good life, right? We want that good life. That's our pursuit of happiness, not just pleasure, but actually the good life. And then there's a third category called the meaningful life, the meaningful life. And that's where I'm living in such a way that my life has meaning. Did anybody say that when I asked the question? That, that we really think about meaning and purpose and that we're living for something bigger than ourselves. That's what it means to meet, live the meaning life, meaningful life. Now, interestingly enough, people who are pursuing and living the meaningful life are usually the most, are, report being the most happy. Interesting, though, that we spend a lot of our time pursuing the pleasant life or the good life and wonder why we're not happy. <laughs> but it's really the meaningful life that will give us meaning and contentment and joy that we heard about in that life. Now, actually, the research shows that we need all three, that we, to really be happy, if we were all really going to report our happiness, we actually would need the pleasant life, the good life, and the meaningful life all going together, right? That would, wouldn't that be great? Well, that'd be wonderful, right? Is that the way life works, though? <laughs> no. Who said nope? No. Right. No. The issue is, is that as much as we pursue the happiness, pursue happiness, as much as we pursue a particular lifestyle and pursue this good life or this pleasant life or this meaningful life, the issue is that circumstances in life tend to interrupt that. Have you noticed? Has anybody noticed that lately? That something will happen in your pursuit of happiness or your pursuit of the good life, that in the middle of that, all of a sudden, all of a sudden something happens that interrupts that pursuit. And if it hasn't happened to you yet, I'm not predicting anything is going to happen, but there's a good chance that at some point in your life, it is going to get interrupted in some form or some fashion. And what do you do? How are you going to respond in that moment? How are you going to deal with it? And how did Joseph deal with it? We actually don't know a lot about what Joseph dealt with in terms of his own personal life. We don't get a lot. We just know what happens to Joseph. Joseph, in the story here, we pick up from last week. We left Joseph in the pit last week, and this week we continue in the story 
what we need to kind of back up and remember is, and know is that Joseph has, before he gets thrown into the pit, has just traveled by foot 65 miles to see his brothers. 65 miles he's traveled to find his brothers and to be with them. Now, the reason his, his father sends him to check on his brother, you would think that dad would be a little wiser about this. You know, he, he, he had to have some indication that the brothers didn't like Joseph, but he certainly wasn't worried about Joseph's security because he sends Joseph out to check on his brothers. So he's not worried about it, but he knows about it probably. Now, why does Jacob send Joseph to do this? Well, you have to back up a few chapters in Genesis because where he goes to is Shechem. And in Shechem, what had hap- had something terrible had happened in Shechem. This is where, uh, if you back up, if you're in the Pew Bibles, let's go back to chapter 34. We're in uh, Genesis chapter 37 today, but I want us to back up to chapter 34, if you got your Bible open, and we see what happened. <clears throat> 34, chapter 34, I'm on page 41 in your pew Bibles, if you, that helps. 34, verse 1 and 2. Let's read 1 and 2, and it's not going to be on the screen, so I apologize. I'm, 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 I'm using the scriptures today. So it says, Dinah, the daughter whom Leah had born to Jacob, went out to meet the women of that country. And when Shechem, the son of the Hivite Hamor, and the country's prince saw her, he took her slept with her, and humiliated her. Which, and in this point of view, from the patriarchal system, Dinah really probably had no choice in the matter. And so he's taken advantage of her. And so now what happens next is the brothers of Dinah know about it. They hear about it. And they want to go take this guy out because they have defi- he has defiled their sister. But they work out a deal. The, the fathers come together, the patriarchs come together, and they begin to work out a little deal. And the deal goes like this. We'll intermarry, and we'll allow you to marry my daughter if all of you get circumcised. So if you can imagine grown men getting circumcised, we won't go there. We won't actually imagine that, sorry. <laughs> but now, three days later, Levi and Simeon, two of Joseph's brothers, two of the brothers, get this idea. On the third day after their circumcision, they went back to Shechem and they killed all those men. And they took out not their justice, but their revenge for their sister. Look ahead. And the reason, they, when they get confronted about it, go to 34 verse 31. And here's their response to their killing of the, the, the men of Shechem. And he says, they, they said, this is Simeon and Levi, said, but didn't he treat our sister like a prostitute? And so he, they take revenge on the, the, the area of Shechem. And so now, get this, so this is why Jacob is sending Joseph. Jacob is sending Joseph to Shechem to check on the brothers. Why? Because they could be in trouble. So Joseph actually is going on a goodwill mission <laughs> To his brothers. He's actually also taking food to his brothers, most likely. And so he takes this journey. Now, interestingly enough, in the journey to Shechem, he gets there, and who's not in Shechem for some reason? Why did they move on, right? You know the answer, I know. And so what is going on? Well, first of all, Joseph encounters a stranger who just happens to know where they've gone, and he points, he points Joseph to Dothan, where the brothers are. Now, interestingly enough, 
Why does the Bible record this little incident? Because here's Joseph. Now he's at the point where maybe he was going to turn around and go home. Think about, we don't have this story. This doesn't necessarily go in the Bible if Joseph turns around and goes home. But the stranger redirects him to Dothan. A stranger. Whenever you read the Old Testament and you see a stranger, pay attention. Because something's going on. Circumstances? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. But then add to that that uh, when they do encounter Joseph, we, we, Joseph is thrown into, beaten up and thrown into a pit by his brothers. And then we see some more dynamics going on in this story uh, beyond the stranger. Now, we back up a little bit and we see that one of the brothers, Reuben, Actually, they're about to kill Joseph, and Reuben talks to his brothers and says, let's not do this. He comes up with another plan. Go back to, flip over to chapter uh, 37, and look at verses 21 and 22, and this will be on the screen this morning. It says, when Reuben heard what they said, he saved him from them, telling them, let's not take his life. Reuben said, said to them, don't spill his blood. Throw him into this desert cistern, but don't lay a hand on him. He intended to save Joseph from them and take him back to his father. So again, if, if Joseph is killed, story ends. But Reuben intervenes. Reuben actually saves his life. Why would Reuben do this? Well, Reuben is the older brother. Reuben is the senior. Reuben is the one that is responsible, ultimately responsible for all his brothers. And he would have had to go back to his father and be held accountable for the lives of all his brothers. And if Joseph, he goes back and Joseph's not with them, guess who gets it? Guess who's responsible? Reuben. It also recalls to me the, the, the idea, the story in the New Testament of the prodigal son, where the older brother, if you remember, doesn't do anything to go find his younger brother. And that was his role. That was his responsibility. And he does not do it which is part of the prodigal story. A little New Testament in the Old Testament. But you see this, this idea that he, Reuben ultimately is responsible and saves Joseph's life. So again, another intervention. And then as Joseph is in the cistern and it says that Joseph was crying out for mercy to his brothers, what are they doing? They're eating the food that Joseph brought them. They sit down to eat. Now, where they're at, where they've camped near this cistern, is right along the trade route to Egypt. And so they see a caravan coming by. Coincidence? Somehow God's got to get Joseph to Egypt. Send a stranger, intervening brother, another brother intervenes and says the same thing. Let's not spill his blood. Now, Reuben says this, Judah says this. And why are they saying, don't spill his blood? Because there's another story in the book of Genesis about Cain and Abel. And when Cain was killed by Abel in anger, Abel's blood cried out, spilt blood cried out from the ground. And so that's why these, these brothers know that story. <laughs> they know it well. They've been told this story since they were little children. And they know the story of Cain and Abel, and they have repeated it to their own children. And their father told it to them. And now they're remembering that story, and they're going, you notice how they remember the biblical story and how that biblical story actually shapes their actions in some ways? The same way the scripture shapes ours. But anyway, they're saying, let's not spill his blood because they know that his blood will cry out from the ground to God. 
And so they devise another plan to get rid of Joseph. So this way, they're not guilty of shedding blood, but at the same time, they get rid of their brother. They figured it out. They've worked the system, so to speak. So I think about this. A stranger, two brothers, a caravan are all circumstances out of Joseph's control, aren't they? Joseph has no say in any of this. He's in a pit. He's in a cistern. He's crying out for mercy, and they're not listening. What this reminds me of is a proverb, a proverb that stuck with me for many years. It says this in Proverbs 16, 9, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Think about that. Joseph had a plan. Jacob had a plan. Reuben had a plan. Judah had a plan. He was the, his plan was the only one that worked out, and he got 20 pieces of silver. Probably split it up with his brothers. But think about all those plans that really God was somehow maybe directing behind the scenes for something bigger, something more important that they couldn't even see at the moment. And I think that's the point, that there are times when God is working behind the scenes on something bigger than ourselves, something that we can't see with our own eyes in that moment, in that circumstance, when we feel like life is out of control. Maybe God is up to something. You know, there was a time uh, in my life, well, there's been a lot of times where I've been out of control, not emotionally out of control, but my circumstance in my life have been out of control. I remember one time um, I was on staff, as you may, I may have mentioned before, on denominational staff for another denomination, and I was working for a bishop's, a bishop's office, and I, I, got, I had an opportunity to go to another, to Virginia, northern Virginia, and plant another church. And this was really something that my wife and I enjoyed doing the first time, and we thought, oh great, there's an opportunity for us to plant another church. And so we thought about, we went to northern Virginia, we interviewed with this church, it was a large church, they wanted to hire someone to come in and plant another church in Northern Virginia. At that time, Northern Virginia was the fastest growing area in our entire nation. Uh, and so this was an opportunity for us. And so I went down and we talked to the church and talked, met with the pastor and so forth and the district superintendent. And everything was aligning. You know, we felt like God was calling us to do this. We felt like this is where we were supposed to be. This is a great opportunity. And everybody was signing off. The, the DS signed off. The pastor wanted to bring us. The church was, was, wanted to bring us. And so everything was lining. The stars were aligning. All that was left was that the bishop of my area needed to sign off on my transfer from that area to the next area. And there's a lot of power in that bishop. And that bishop denied my transfer for no reason known to me except maybe pride. My, the way I heard it, second, and again, this is secondhand knowledge, but what had happened was that bishop, my, the bishop that I was working for took offense towards the other bishop who wanted to transfer me and got upset with the other bishop and they had a squabble and then they, and so my, the, my bishop at the time denied the transfer. I remember that moment. What do you mean? You are, how could you do this? This is what God wants, Matt's interpretation. Right? 
Who are you to play God with my life? Who are you to take control of what is happening? But the door was so abruptly slammed in one moment. I was so angry. I was so upset. And the next thing I was doing was get me out of here. Get me, get me out of this place, right? I was so frustrated, so angry, because I felt like this bishop was using power <laughs> to control cir- my circumstances, right? And there was a power dynamic that was at work there, and there was pride, and there was anger and resentment on my part. And I can tell you, I was angry for a while about that. <laughs> you know, recently I was talking, actually this was a couple years ago, I was talking to a colleague in that, that area, and I said, whatever happened to that church plant in Northern Virginia? And they said, oh, that was a terrible situation. The plant never took off because the pastor actually there resigned the next, within the year of that church plant getting started. And the whole church started to fall apart, and then the church plant never took off, and yada, yada, yada. And I thought, hmm. That could have been me. That could have been my circumstances. Could it be that God was working through a human being, a broken human being, to redirect my steps? I think so. Now looking back, right, they say hindsight is always twenty-twenty, right? And when we can see that, when we can see God's hand in some way, in a bad situation, in a difficult situation, we can look back, and I think as we go through the Joseph story, we'll be able to see that more clearly as we go through the story. But I want you to think about that. There may be something happening in your life right now that is out of your control. And I'm not saying that God is causing that. But I do believe in a God who can work through it with you, that can redeem it, that there might be something else going on here so that you and I can make our plans. We can make our plans because plans are about us being in control, right? But maybe God is redirecting our steps in some way we can't even see. We've been talking about in this series resilience. And remember, resilience is our ability to bounce back from adversity. It doesn't mean that we don't get angry, that we don't get upset. It doesn't mean that we don't hurt, that we don't have sadness, that we don't suffer. But how do we respond to it? How do we bounce back from that adversity? Resilience helps us to move from being a victim to being a victor. That resilience is what helps us to move from staying as a victim our entire lives. And I've known people who stay in victim status, but I think God doesn't want us to stay there. And Joseph certainly is a victim. Dinah was certainly a victim. How do we move from being a victim into victory? That's resilience. The ability to do that is what resilience is about. And we actually see that in Jesus' story, in the Jesus story, right? Jesus is, is the victim on a cross. Three days later, he's resurrected. He goes from victim to victor. That's resilience. And who created that resilience for him? God. God's work in his life helped him to be resilient. So when we're angry and resentful and things are out of control and we're upset, I want you to know that we actually don't have to be that. We actually don't have to stay in that. Because I think sometimes the frustration 
of being in the pit is as bad as the pit itself. But even when we're in the pit, there's something that we can do. And that's a deal with that, right? Deal with that because otherwise we'll just become more miserable. You know, another person, psychologist, is, is Viktor Frankl. You know, I, do you notice I talk a lot about psychology? Have you noticed that? You, you know, side note, sermon notes. No, I'm stepping away from sermon. My degree, my undergraduate degree is in psychology. My graduate degree is in theology. Psychology, theology, there you go. Theology is the study of God. Do you know what psychology is? The study of the soul, right? Does God have anything to do with the soul, right? Theology and psychology, in my mind, go together. They're two disciplines that actually interact with each other. It's about the, because one is about the human condition, psychology, and the other is about God's, who God is, right? And I think when we bring these two together, it's all throughout. So for me, as I look through my psychology and my theology, my lenses come to bear. So my, if you, you hear a lot of this, just get used to it. Sorry. But Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychologist working with uh, uh, patients uh, who were struggling with, with committing suicide, with doing, uh, committing the act of suicide, dying by suicide. And he was working with patients in Austria. And he was moved from the hospital he was working in to a Jewish hospital in 1938. Why 1938? Because that's when the Nazis took over. And so because he was practicing in an Aryan hospital, he could no longer do that as a Jewish psychologist, so they moved him to another hospital where he could only treat Jewish people. Then in 1942, he was moved to a ghetto in Czechoslovakia where he continued his work as a psychologist. And then in 1944, he was transferred to a death camp known as Auschwitz. And in Auschwitz, his brother, his mother, his father, and his wife were all killed in Auschwitz. He was the survivor. And he was all this time studying the human condition in, this, in these conditions. So you have to keep in mind Viktor Frankl's perspective, right? Where was he at? What was he experiencing? Now, some in the Jewish community actually debate that he may have actually contributed to some of the Nazi efforts by helping to create kind of a picture of everything was okay because he was a doctor treating people and they could say, hey, look at this doctor we have treating or doing good things within our camps, right? So there's debate within the Jewish community, but I would say that he is still a survivor of the Holocaust. He is still a victim of the Holocaust. He lost family. He had to endure the camps and the changes. Things were totally out of his control. Circumstances were out of his control. He had every right to be angry and bitter and resentful. And in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, The Meaningful Life, he says this, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. See, I think we do have a choice about how we will respond to the circumstances. We, don't, we can't control the circumstances, right? But we do, we do have a response that we are responsible for, that we can choose in the midst of that life circumstance. So I wonder about that for Joseph. The text doesn't really tell us but I wonder about Joseph being sold out the way he was. I mean, that's really what happened. His brothers sold him out. And it was totally out of his control. 
He was beaten up, thrown in a cistern. He was crying out for mercy to his brothers. His brothers ignore him. They probably were sitting there eating the meal that he brought, taking pleasure in hearing him beg because they were what? Getting their revenge. Getting even with Joseph. They probably gloated in that moment. I wonder what was going on in Joseph after that as he got sold to the traders and then he got carried off by these traders and then sold again in Egypt. He was being treated as an object, as property, where he had gone from this status of favored one, of having everything going well with his work, everything going well, well, not going well with his family, but you get it, having the pleasures of life. He was living the good life. And now everything's been taken from him. And he's sold out for 20 pieces of silver like Jesus being sold out by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. And it's interesting because the Jewish law in Exodus 21 said that if someone were to kidnap and sell someone as a slave, that they were to be stoned. Capital punishment for this behavior. The brothers should have been killed for what they did to Joseph. And that's why they come up with their plan to do away with him and sell him off and make it look like an accident. I wonder what was going on inside of Joseph. Was he angry? Was he bitter? Was he frustrated? Was he sad? I bet he felt all those things. I bet he felt all of that at different moments along the journey from that pit to Egypt. He went through all those emotions. And yet... There's one other verse that we're going to look at next week, but I want to cue you in this week. It's in chapter 39. We haven't got to it yet. But verse 2 says this, The Lord was with Joseph. Wow. Isn't that good to know? (laughs) That all along, Joseph is going through these horrible circumstances, these difficult circumstances, these adversity, and yet... It says that the Lord was with Joseph. Now, wait a second, scratching my head here. Are you scratching your head? He's a slave in Egypt. And it says that the Lord was with him. It's not about the circumstances, is it? Notice how we started off talking about life's circumstances, that happiness is connected to the circumstances of our life. That's not Joseph. Joseph's circumstances have nothing to do with whether or not the Lord is with him. Think about that. Your circumstances in life have nothing to say about whether God loves you or not, whether God is for you or not, because God is for you just as God is for Joseph in, this, in the middle of this dark story. And in the middle of your dark story, God is with you. God is for you. God has not abandoned you just as God has not abandoned Joseph because the story isn't over yet. The story is still going on. The Lord was with Joseph. To know that, to get our hearts around that, to build that within us is resilience. To know that God is with us is to help us be resilient in the face of adversity. You see, God's up to something. You know, just as as Joseph is adapting, right, to his new life as a slave. His brothers has, have been deceiving, 
their parents. I, I get this image that as Joseph is arriving in Egypt, the brothers have made it back home, and they're now talking to mom and dad about Joseph's death. And his parents begin to mourn. It's interesting that as his parents are mourning, that it's interesting because the brothers use a garment, his coat, and a goat. They slaughter a goat to deceive their father. Why do I bring this up? Because Jacob, their father, did the same thing to his father. Because Jacob took a garment from his brother and took a kid goat and slaughtered it and used it to deceive his own father to steal his brother's birthright earlier in Genesis. So now the deceiver is being deceived. The sins of the father are now being passed on to, the sin, to, to be the sins of the sons. As my dad used to say, the apple don't fall far from the tree. That's exactly what's going on here. They've learned to deceive. <laughs> They're simply doing what they've, learned, what they've learned to do. Parents mourn, but I want you to know that all this is going on on a human level. But from God's perspective, the dream has not been abandoned. In fact, the promise to Abraham has not been abandoned. It is still in play, right? So no matter what's going on here at a human level, from a human perspective, God's plan is still in play. God's work is still happening. That's good news, isn't it? And it's important for us that in every life circumstance that we remember that God is faithful to us, that God's faithfulness is there. And I think that's a key to our ability to be resilient in life. And the ability to look up to God in the midst of difficult circumstances and to know that God is with us, that's awesome. And in fact, sometimes that's the only thing we're left with in life. So I thought, you know, as we find ourselves in different circumstantial cisterns in our lives, I thought we'd just take a moment and, and just do a little exercise with me. No crayons this week crayons, sorry. But I want you just to close your eyes right now. Just close your eyes. Go with me. Trust me. This will be easy. So close your eyes. I just want to just take a deep breath. Just take a nice deep breath because sometimes we just need to breathe. Now I want you to think about a time, recall a time in your life where you could see God's faithfulness. Remember and recall a time when God was for you, when God showed up, when God provided for you. Just think about that. What time, when, when does, what comes to mind when you think about God's faithfulness to you personally? And as you think about that, just notice what it does to your heart and what it does to your mind. Does it help? Does it help to know that God is faithful? Does it help to remember that God is for you and not against you? That God has not abandoned you and is still at work in your life? Remember that today. You can open your eyes now so we can read one last verse together. 
And let's read this verse together. It's Romans 8.28. Let's read this together. We know that God works all things together for good for the ones who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. There's that word again, purpose, meaning, something bigger than ourselves. Joseph was a part of something bigger than himself. And that brought meaning to his life and his adventure. And we'll learn more about that in the weeks to come. Let's pray together.